This is hell. Big announcement for everybody. This is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which has not happened since February of 2020, returns next Wednesday, Wednesday, August 24th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, the bar downstairs from where I am sitting right now, our weekly meet and greet, which is actually more of a drink and think, will be taking place on at a regularly scheduled time yet again, beginning next Wednesday, August 24th, at around 6 o'clock over here at Carrie's Lounge. Hang out with everybody from the show as well as some listeners. Again, this is how Office Hours return next Wednesday, August 24th. I hope to see all of you there live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell. When fighting for what you consider a just cause, you may want to consider the battles of those who have sacrificed before you. You may want to examine the victories and defeats that have happened along the way to make sure you build upon whatever success has been experienced in the past and to learn from and avoid making any of the same old mistakes again. Back in the 1970s, during one of the many campaigns for equality, justice, freedom, and liberation, the black feminist lesbian socialist organization known as the Combahee River Collective released an important statement wherein they argued If black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all of the systems of oppression. So when considering workers' rights and the potential for labor organizing, it only makes sense that activists would consider the most oppressed workers and apply the same lesson of the Combahee River Collective. If the most oppressed workers are free, all workers may be free. And when considering the most oppressed work, is anything more the target of state violence and oppression than sex work? In a few minutes, we'll consider the role sex workers and sex work activists have played and how they can contribute, even considering our entire, reconsidering our entire relationship with work. When we talk to Dr. Heather Berg, who is the author of the Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex workers are labor's vanguard. The left ignores them at its peril. Dr. Berg writes about sex, work, and social struggle. Her first book, published in 2021, is Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. It explores workers' strategies for navigating and subverting precarity. Her writing appears uh, has appeared in many journals, including Feminist Studies, Signs, South Atlantic Journal, uh, South Atlantic Quarterly, and others. Heather is assistant professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find Heather on Twitter at drheatherberg, that's Dr. Heatherberg, and find out more by visiting drheatherberg.org, again, drheatherberg.org. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, this week I've been catching up with uh, the producers. Lindsay's dad apparently is not affected by insomnia while driving back and forth from Phoenix, Arizona to Chicago, Illinois. Dan Hill can actually stay awake during a 20-minute how-to video to fix in, on fixing a 15-year-old printer and then actually apply that knowledge and fix his printer. 
anything as exciting as what has been happening with Lindsay and Dan in your life, Sebastian? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, not, not really sure. I mean, insomnia uh, has not really been a problem that I'm having. Oh, well, uh, there you go. More, and more, uh, more like the, the opposite. And how are you at fixing printers? Uh. I don't know. I don't really fix them. I just throw them away and buy new ones. <laughs> that's kind of um, that's yeah. No, <laughs> that's uh, yeah. I, I I'm good at breaking them, um, but also I might have discovered my calling in uh, in this uh, other job I have now, where I uh, am acting as a writer researcher for a history textbook company, and uh, apparently people who know history are actually needed there. Which so, so what is the calling? Is your calling actually writing textbooks? Is that what you think your calling is? Making sure that the history that we have in textbooks is accurate and has the right details and is also interesting to read. You know, for years and years, we tried to get this author on the show. I think his name is Kyle Ward, and he was writing a book or working on a book about the way in which American history is depicted in different curriculums around the world. So, for instance, what, how is American history taught in German schools? And I've been waiting for that book for so long. I emailed that guy for several years, and I don't think that book ever got finished. I don't even know if that guy's alive anymore. But, man, that is really a book I wanted to have on this show so bad. Yeah. And I really wish that somebody would do something that, that kind of study. Uh, so right now, at this moment, the most exciting thing for me is while I thoroughly enjoyed my vacation with family over the past couple of weeks, I am absolutely thrilled about spending an entire weekend, two and a half full days, alone with my uncommon law wife. I love my family. I could have easily spent another couple of weeks up north at the lake with them, and they are definitely in the top five of people I want to spend time with. A list that includes, in no particular order, my family, my friends, my girly, myself, and 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 you. And I hope you will all spend time with us uh, right around a month from now, on Saturday, September 17th, during summer's final weekend for the This Is Hell 26th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party featuring the closing of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art Art Show. There will not only be uh, art, but also live music, good food, a raffle of This Is Hell adjacent gifts, and most importantly, there will be you. And we hope to see all of you at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood on Saturday, September 17th during summer's final weekend for the This Is Hell 26th anniversary and listener appreciation party featuring the closing of the This Is Hell sponsored This Is Art art show. It's a great place to see old friends and make new ones and meet the staff of This Is Hell. Also, at every party we've ever thrown, past guests have always surprised us by joining in the festivities. We never know who or when, uh, but all of a sudden you can turn around and there's uh, Flint Taylor or Kathy Kelly or Andy Thayer or Mike Roper or past producers or contributors. Again, join us Saturday, September 17th during summer's final weekend for the This Is Hell 26th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party featuring the closing of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art Art Show featuring live music, good food, a raffle of This Is Hell adjacent gifts, and most importantly, you. And it's all happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. More important than how excited I am about a weekend alone with my partner and yet another reminder about the upcoming This Is Hell 26th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party. Uh, 
Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? <laughs> what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? That's why I have to see have my plumber come over, because I've been maniacally flushing the toilet, <laughs> and it has not done any good for the gaskets involved. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. And we need your support now more than ever because it turns out paying our staff a living wage is admirable but not so great for our bottom line. So please show your support for This Is Hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. Thanks to Ryan S., who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Uh, Ryan S. of Oak Park, Illinois, and he picked up a uh, This Is Hell trucking professional cap, which people just absolutely love. And thanks to Daniel M. in Portland, Maine, who got a This Is Hell t-shirt and an enamel camping mug when he went to thisishell.com and clicked on support. So thanks, Ryan and Daniel. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us right now at thisishell at gmail, thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following producer Sebastian Vupper, who will be unveiling his newly renamed and ostensibly reconceived segment on understanding history in our time, formerly Seb Soapbox and now with the new moniker, The Past in the Present, which is far more descriptive of what your contribution actually is there, Sebastian. Sebastian will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation on sex work, labor organizing, and the left with Dr. Heather Berg. Again, the question from hell is, what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? Uh, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, and if you do, with guest suggestions, topic suggestions, or constructive or destructive criticism, we'll likely read your email on air. And if you do suggest a guest who we do then have on the show, we will thank you personally during that interview with your suggested guest. We got an email from the program director of a station where we air every week, CKUW in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Scott has been a listener since long before we began airing on CKUW, and he writes, Hey, a couple of guest recommendations. First is James Witt. He recently wrote a book on the socialist politics of alcohol. His previous book is also worth checking out. Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars? Public Transit in the Age of Google, Uber, and Elon Musk. Also, Nora Laredo. <laughs> I know, but isn't that a great title for a book? Yeah, it's a great Do, title, but but I'm, I'm sorry. I am contractually obliged to say whatever <laughs> Elon's name comes up. Yeah, I, I understand that. That is part of your contract. We made sure that loophole was in there. Uh, also, he suggests Nora Laredo is one of the few journalists in Canada consistently covering covid and 
Scott mentions Ukrainian diaspora politics in Canada is pretty wild, he says. In short, there has long been a left and right wing. The right wing nationalists have connections to Ukrainian Nazi collaborators, and there are statues to Ukrainian Nazi or fascists in Edmonton. Winnipeg has a long history of Ukrainian left socialist tradition. The Ukrainian Labor Temple in Winnipeg's North End is a shining example of that. I recently became a part of the association that runs it. Don't let my na- last name, Price, fool you. My paternal side is completely Ukrainian, but the name was changed so my grandfather could get a better job. That's exactly what happened to my great-grandparents as well. Uh, One of the best people to talk about uh, on Ukrainian diaspora politics and Ukrainian nationalist uh, Nazi collaboration is someone named John Paul Himka, H-I-M-K-A. I interviewed John Paul Himka for my radio show a number of years ago, Scott says. Regards... Scott, okay, there's a lot there, and I want to get to Heather's. So first, the James Witt book on the socialist politics of alcohol is called Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy, which came out in July and just moved to the top of my reading list. So we will be sending James an interview request ASAP. Second, you can find out more about Nora Lovetto at noralovetto.ca, and you will know that you are at the right place if the first thing you see is her name at the website, and immediately beneath it it says, Kicking at the Darkness Until It Bleeds Daylight. And if you want to hear Scott's interview on Ukrainian nationalist Nazi collaboration, search online for Radio Free Winnipeg and Scott's guest named, again, John Paul Himka. Again, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, and if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. Coming up, the connection between supposed anti-sex trafficking laws and gig workers. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as announce this week's winning answer. Producer Sebastian Vupper will be doing his inaugural edition of The Past Inside the Present, and we'll tell you who we have scheduled to be on next week's show. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell, live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people. This is hell and few people few workers have fewer rights than sex workers they have led precarious lives and have been the targets of abuse even deadly state violence for as long as anyone can remember and nobody is seemingly doing a damn thing about it other than sex workers and sex work activists much can be learned from their experiences that can inform us about labor rights and our very relationship with work So why aren't those who are concerned about labor rights listening to those engaged in what can be one of the most oppressive lines of work? Here to help us understand, Dr. Heather Berg is author of the Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex Workers Are Labor's Vanguard, The Left Ignores Them at Its Peril. Welcome to This Is Hell, Heather. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on our show. This uh, article is absolutely fascinating. We have had many discussions on the air about sex work in the past, but never from this perspective of sex work, just being a general critique in, of work and our relationship with work. You write how Tamara, you quote Tamara McLeod, uh, the pseudonym of a freelance writer, sex worker, and activist based in England. 
Uh, listeners can find her on Twitter at Hi Tamara McLeod. That's M A C L E O D. And you begin your article by quoting Tamara in the wake of FOSTA-SESTA, a 2018 law that cut off sex workers' ability to use the Internet to screen clients for safety, advertise without a middleman, and communicate with each other. Tamara states, facing a future offline was like anticipating survival in a world with no running water or electricity. FOSTA-SESTA are, are two U.S. laws passed by Congress. The that uh, that's the allow states and victims to fight online sex trafficking act and the stop enabling sex traffickers act both have sex trafficking or sex trafficker in their names were these laws aimed at ending sex trafficking specifically but not sex work and if that is not the case if fosta sesta's goal is to end sex work more generally why package the laws as being against specifically sex trafficking and not the larger overall sex work industry? Yeah, I mean, some some folks um, do what, what they call like, assuming good intent um, of lawmakers. I don't buy it. Um, I think there's there's just so much overwhelming historical and contemporary evidence that laws like these um, not only don't meet the promise of addressing the real problem of sex trafficking, um, but also create a lot of havoc for people in their wake. Um, and one thing I want to say just at the start is that there aren't two totally discrete groups. And sometimes sex worker activists have to make this argument to, to be a little bit more palatable to, say, mainstream politicians. But it's not the case case that there are there's one group of people who fully consent to sex work and another people who are bludgeoned over the head um, and trafficked but rather than most people exist on a consent continuum as they do in all sorts of informal work um, and so laws that further criminalize one part of this community will necessarily have reverberating effects on other parts. Um, so no, the, the, I think there's no way to imagine that the actual intent of these laws was to address sex trafficking. We know that you know, there are really um, clear ways that lawmakers could do that if what they wanted to do was help people get out of situations they don't want to be in. Um, those things would include fixing the foster care system. They would include housing for queer youth who are really overrepresented in communities of people who are trafficked. Um, it would include things, you know, basic stuff, housing, access to health care. Um, and, and none of that fits under the rubric of laws that surveil what sex workers do online. On WHYY, Philadelphia's The Pulse, reporter Liz Tung, uh, she quoted activist and sex worker Daniel Blunt saying FOSTA Sesta, Sesta has been a devastating, has had a devastating effect on the community and the community's ability to support themselves, to take care of themselves, to make money, and to screen clients and stay safe. You write of FOSTA Sesta that it was in making third-party websites liable for the content that users post. The law pushed sex work-specific platforms to shutter and others to ban sex workers, sex worker users. As sex work is a crime, was this crackdown to be expected? Well, you know, first I'll just clarify that not all sex work is criminalized. So FOSTA-SESTA nominally targeted criminalized forms of sex work or prostitution, but it, their effects um, shaped how all sorts of sex workers from porn workers to cam girls to folks who are advertising for 
stripping or erotic dance, uh, how all sorts of people engaged their labor. Um, and so, so that's one piece. Um, and, and I think something that a lot of, of civilians or non-sex workers don't understand is that when you can't advertise independently, you're actually more um, dependent on predatory third parties, whether those be sex work specific advertising sites that charge a huge cut um, and that you now have to use because your Twitter account's been shut down, for example, or, um, and I'll use porn as one example, um, but actual in-person managers, directors, and producers who have more power if people can't self-produce and advertise and distribute content on their own. Uh, the Pulse's Liz Tung adds in her writing that the laws have also had another effect. FOSTA-SESTA laws have had another effect. The emergence of a grassroots movement that's giving voice to sex workers' concerns in an unprecedented way. She then mm-hmm. quotes activist Blunt saying, one thing that FOSTA-SESTA did do was sort of mobilize very vocal online sex workers with large followings in a way that they made maybe hadn't been politicized before. And because it became so vi- uh, visible online, uh, like despite the ways that we're uh, being shadow banned and the ways that we're being policed and the ways that we're being surveilled, somehow this like v- very random set of bills that turned into a law became something where now presidential candidates are being asked about what their stance on sex work is. And I do not think that would have happened without the community organizing that happened around mobilizing against FOSTA-SESTA. Now, this is a quote from Daniel Blunt from back during the 2020 presidential campaign. Considering both laws have sex trafficking in their titles when it comes to FOSTA-SESTA, how politically viable is it for any candidate to oppose FOSTA-SESTA or any incumbent politician to voice their opposition to sex trafficking laws? Or is there actual growing public support against these sex trafficking laws? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think both things are true. Um, it's it's really hard and, and risky for mainstream politicians to come out against laws like this. Um, they are, you know, titled under sex trafficking prevention because that is a highly effective bipartisan technique for for getting uh, legislation passed. And it's also true that there is a, a real um, sea change that, as Blunt says is absolutely um, due to sex workers organizing. And so I, I do think things are changing. Um, I think voters, uh, because of sex worker organizing, are um, are asking these questions in different ways and, and more and more making it impossible for legislators to ignore them. And the, the one other thing I'll mention is just that, um, that the sex worker researcher collective that Blunt is involved with Hacking Hustling has put out an incredible research that I really recommend readers turn to um, on the intersection between shadow banning of sex worker accounts and increased surveillance of activists. So it's true that sex worker activism is, is changing the nature of the conversation. And it's also true that the risks for talking about this publicly are even higher for people who both do sex work and do public activism. Just so people know, what is shadow banning? Um, so it's a practice in where your account on Twitter, for example, would be uh, deep prioritized in Twitter's algorithm um, such that people couldn't search for you 
I'm currently shadow banned. So, um, so for example, I retweeted your tweet this yesterday about our show, um, but no one can see it because Twitter thinks that I'm doing sex work right now. And so has, uh, has hidden results um, involving my name. So, but none of this is communicated to you. So you, you know this only because well, sex workers have figured out how to search for it um, in ways that, that get around the shadowiness, but, uh, but it's a way to, to deprioritize uh, accounts and information in the algorithm without ever communicating that and thus makes it harder to fight directly. No wonder I couldn't tag you on Facebook yesterday. I was right. trying to figure that out yep. because usually when in the URL, when you get to the person's Facebook page, it says after Facebook.com, it says what your, you know, coded name is so people can mm. find it better. And yeah. yours just came up with something that said profile equals HP question mark and made absolutely uh, no sense what, whatsoever. So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't was, know it was Facebook too. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So, so is... Yeah. When it comes to the use of sex trafficking in bills names or in acts names or in laws that are signed in or bills that are signed into laws names, is sex sex trafficking a, a cover for racist, misogynist, or patriarchal laws? As uh, you know, sex work is often something that is uh, disproportionately experienced by people who are marginalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it absolutely is a cover. And, and I'll say, you know, that's not new at all. FOSSA-SESA did mean a, a really massive rupture in all of this, but the, there's a much longer history here. Um, one early example of that is the Mann Act, which was an explicitly racist law that policed um, women's traffic, if you will, and as the law stated it, over state lines. Um, and that began um, amidst a, a kind of flurry of concern around white women's interracial sex. Um, and so like there, there, it has always been attached to these concerns about mobility. Um, prior to that, we're looking at in, in post-emancipation policy, a lot of early anti-sex trafficking policy was directly geared towards reducing black women's mobility um, and forcing them to stay in underpaid jobs um, in the South. And so like, there's, a, there's a much longer history here um, and we can see how that history informs contemporary policy, absolutely. You write that middle managers saw FOSTA-SESTA as a boon, an <clears throat> opportunity to serve as intermediaries for a workforce newly constrained in their ability to use the web to facilitate independent gig work. Sex workers had to take more risks with clients and were more vulnerable to abusive cops. Some died, more will. How yeah. do these middle managers operate and have they benefited while sex workers have suffered? Was this intentional that it was believed by the people who are writing these laws that introducing middle managers to the process would somehow deter sex trafficking and operating online. Mm -hmm. I mean, so no, that that part wasn't intentional. I don't think lawmakers sat there and thought, you know, let's let's give the the grimiest porn producers more power. Um, but I do. But it is my argument in that piece and elsewhere. Um, that, that anti-sex work policy in general is geared towards forcing sex workers to work under a boss. Now, as, as far as lawmakers would have it, that would be under bosses in civilian or non-sex work jobs. I think a lot of what animates policy like this is the desire to get people back to low-wage service work. And that's 
I think why it's not a mistake that, for example, increasing surveillance of OnlyFans workers came about at exactly the same time as we were hearing about a mass exodus of food service workers, right? Um, so there's there's that connection too. Um, and can you remind me, I'm sorry, the, the second part of your question. Uh, just that was this intentional, you know, what, yeah. was this an intentional process that the, the belief was if we somehow privatize this, if we somehow bring in middle managers, that this will address sex trafficking? Right. Yeah, thanks. So, so no, I, again, I don't think that the intent was to, to give more power to middle managers, but really anyone who's paying attention could imagine that that's what happens. So, for example, again, in the porn industry, we saw in the late 2010s just this massive shift from, in terms of who had power in the industry. And as it became more and more possible for performers to self-produce, producers and directors who were not sex workers um, had less and less control over their workforce. Uh, many managers even complained to me that fewer people would work for them. Um, wages went up, all sorts of things shifted. And, and so there's no, and there's no world in which a lawmaker could not understand that if you take away people's ability to work independently, they will be um, more dependent on third-party managers. So that happened in criminalized sectors as well. And countless sex workers talked about the tits and sass piece that I linked to in the Boston Review article mentions this, but um, folks talked about just in the hours after FOSTA-SESA was passed, sex workers were getting uh, DMs on Twitter and, um, and through their advertising accounts from pimps saying, well, you need me again now. And so that this is exactly what they warned lawmakers. Um, they had been lobbying for months saying this is what's going to happen. And hours after the laws were passed, that's exactly what happened. So Fausta Sesta, if that benefits pornographers and pimps, do, do the lawmakers who signed on to this law, the lawmakers who wrote these laws, do they favor the rights of pornographers and pimps? Do they want to benefit pornographers and pimps more than they want to uh, benefit the sex workers themselves? You know, I, I can't speak to their, their deepest desire. You know, I think, I think what they want um, is to benefit uh, to benefit retail and food service bosses more than anything. I think, you know, it's not, um, I'm sure no one would say that they're, they're, they're in it to, to help out, um, you know, porn producers. And, and to be clear, you know, I don't think there's anything less ethical or grimier about, you know, managing a porn set um, than managing a McDonald's. <laughs> so, but at the end of the day, yeah, what lawmakers, I think, have long wanted is to keep, you know, in particular women and queers um, subordinate to, to bosses. And so, well, you know, historically that's been in domestic labor, again, in food service, in retail, and we can see what that looks like now. Um, the kind of side effect of that is that it empowers all sorts of bosses. We are speaking with Dr. Heather Berg, author of the Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex Workers Are Labor's Vanguard, The Left Ignores Them at Its Peril. You can find Heather on Twitter at drheatherberg, that's B-E-R-G, and find out more about her by visiting drheatherberg.org. She uh, has a, a book out, came out last year. It's entitled Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. So when it comes to the left and sex work, you write, 
the civilian, that is the non-sex worker left, has been overwhelmingly quiet about sex worker rights. This failure of solidarity has made it easier for the state to push a community of workers into ever more precarious conditions. But failed solidarities are never just that. They refract back, exposing fundamental vulnerabilities in those whose solidarities fail. When there should be allies quietly endorse state violence, sex workers are not the only ones who lose. Quietly endorse state violence. Is this being done uh, by the uh, civilian left actively or passively? Is this a matter of the civilian left, as you call it, uh, support for the criminalization of sex work? Or is this the civilian uh, left not being aware, or worse, not being concerned about sex worker abuse conducted by the state, especially in the form of policing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think some of this is absolutely active. There's a real cohort of actively anti-sex worker uh, people who who call themselves leftists. I want to I want to be clear there. I don't, I don't think it's possible to be a leftist and be anti-sex worker. Um, but that that's real. There. Um, are a lot of social democrats in particular who are you know very much in, in as well as as people farther on the left and communists and etc um who who are very invested in the idea of work itself as dignified but uh, there being things about work under capitalism that need tweaking um and if you come to the table with that position then you are, you are necessarily and often actively anti-sex worker. Um, so just a brief example of what that looks like. I recently had a, someone conducted an interview with me for a social democratic publication um, and the editor there killed it because I talked about how sex workers organize um, outside the state so that they prefer say mutual aid to reform and often prefer strategies like self-production, like working independently to trade union strategies. And so this social democratic editor said, uh, you know, nothing against sex workers, but these aren't tactics we support. And the thing is you can't support a community, but also have nothing but disdain for the tactics that work for them. Um, and so I think that's that's part of the active piece. There's also a lot of bourgeois morality on the left on, among people who call themselves leftists. Um, people who have a lot of attachments to the idea that that appropriate sex is unpaid, um, and that monogamy is a cornerstone of the kind of futures we want to build, and so on. Um, and then I think there's a lot of passive support too. What that can look like is, um, I think, support, very selective support for sex worker organizing, where you'll see, um, again, mainstream left poli- uh, publications supporting say a stripper union drive because it looks exactly like the kind of organizing that's most legible to them but um, no support at all for for example movements against um, shadow banning or banking discrimination so and then the final sorry go ahead no 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 you go ahead go on um just the final thing i'll say is that i think that a lot of leftists especially leftist men um, are often kind of shy about supporting sex worker rights. And I, I think this is, it's just become really interesting to me how many uh, civilian left comrades will kind of tell me privately that they support these, these um, movements, but are embarrassed to do so publicly because they're afraid that other leftists will, you know, will think they, they're um, big into porn. And so we can see all the ways that these kind of um, attachments to, 
to a particular kind of sexuality informs us too. So were you surprised by that reaction from the editors of Jacobin? Oh, okay. I, I really can't name it. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd like I, that. <laughs> I, um, no, I wasn't surprised. I was surprised they commissioned the interview in the first place, quite honestly. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I, I don't find it surprising, but I do, um, you know, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. I, I think in, in this moment, I mean, the, the left is in such crisis. The world is on fire. <laughs> Working people have really, really urgent concerns and um and i just i think it sucks that um that that the kind of political horizon of people who are, are putting positioning themselves as the the vanguard of this moment is so foreshortened i mean really what they're asking for is so limited and i think yeah i just think our, our current moment calls for much much bigger demands i think our current moment uh calls for more people saying, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. I think that's, that's very good on your part, Heather. Uh, you write that this left narrative argues that gig work is new and newly exploitative. Its primary goal yeah. is to bring gig workers back into full-time employee status and the securities and relationships the state imagined to have once been tied to it. But sex work has always been gig work. Sex workers, belie, stories belie the idea that gig workers are dumbly lured by false promises of flexibility. Many sex workers seek out sex work precisely because it does not follow the rules of full-time jobs. People with disabilities, like myself, caretakers, activists, and organizers, artists, and others whose lives can't accommodate schedules bosses set might pursue sex work because it means better conditions or because they find it impossible to get and keep straight jobs, especially for those marginalized in civilian work. As sociologist Angela Jones writes, sex, works, sex work is, quote, a literal lifeline. To you, what explains the civilian left's opposition to worker flexibility, to gig work out of the standard work schedule imposed by businesses and employers for generations? What explains that kind of opposition to gig work? Yeah. I mean, I think I think a big piece of it is that the, the the kind of sector of the civilian left that I'm taking aim at here um, has a lot of attachments to the the male white uh, nu nuclear <laughs> family attached um, and able-bodied worker. So this that is where so much of this kind of Fordist nostalgia comes back to. Um, where again, I just think. God, you know, in the year of our Lord 2022, what you're asking for is still like some kind of return to the Ford factory. Um, but but when when you actually look at these demands, they're kinds of political demands that would serve that kind of worker. So I think part of what's behind this attachment is um, a lot of ableism, a lot of racism, um, misogyny, again, um, attachments to a particular kind of family form. Um, but also the sense again that that work isn't the problem but that some of the ways in which it's compensated and some of its conditions underlay capitalism are a problem um, whereas for sex workers and for a lot of other people um, overrepresented in racialized disabled and queer communities um, it's it's clear that like waged work is the issue um, so i think that's part of what's behind it um, i think also i see a lot in in mainstream left um, circles, this this kind of sense that um, that folks 
don't want total transformation, but, but want conditions to be a little bit less crushing for the people who take out their trash. And, um, and at the end of the day that, you know, the, the demand there is not to radically redistribute what work looks like, um, but rather again, to, you know, fight for 15, which is, it's a pretty, pretty limited demand, I think at this point. So does gig work provide a workplace free of the discrimination against workers of color, those with disabilities and trans workers as well? Does gig work fulfill a need, a demand for discrimination-free workplaces for those who are discriminated against? Yeah, absolutely not. It, it, it doesn't. And, it, you know, gig worker organizing is the first to tell us that, um, that, that gig work often makes that promise, but, but it doesn't come through. But I think the thing that I am always trying to highlight is that even as that's true, that gig work often fails at those promises, that gig workers aren't stupid for trying to find them in gigs. So there are two, you know, this one thing to say that like Uber is a shitty boss, that racism is rampant there too, obviously ableism, et cetera. Um, but that, that it's not, it's not a kind of miscalculation on workers' part to say that driving Uber might make more sense for them than working at an Amazon warehouse. Um, and so I think, I think parsing those things apart becomes really crucial for me. And you talk about this mention, this idea, this notion of enclosure. You write, if sex workers have long sought out ways to make a living independently, they have also long faced the state's attempts to cut this strategy off at the knees. The internet is the kind of, as a kind of commons, a public space that working people can use to rest autonomy and live otherwise. It is for that reason vulnerable to the capitalist state's efforts to curb its liberatory potential. You then quote uh, activist and sex worker Tamara McLeod writing, cyberspace can be enclosed. And you explain that she frames prohibitions against digital sex work as tools of enclosure, part of the longer story of efforts by the capitalist state to make it harder for working people to survive outside the wage, wage relation. Enclosure manifests as sex worker uh, criminalization, but also in vagrancies laws that criminalize homelessness, zoning ordinances that prohibit street vending, and the growing privatization of public goods. Efforts yeah. by the capitalist state to make it harder for working people to survive outside the wage, rela- wage relation. How do sex workers work outside the wage relation? Is the capitalist state against sex work because it's not taxed or is being outside the wage relation more than just that taxability? Mm-hmm. I mean, so again, just as many forms of sex work um, are not currently criminalized in the U.S., sex workers do overwhelmingly pay their taxes. Um, and I don't say that in, in a ter- in to make a kind of respectability claim, like these are good taxpaying citizens. I don't think there's any, any glory in that, but it just makes sense. A lot of people do because it's safer to do so. Um, so I'll say that first. Um, I think you know the, the, we can see what this looks like historically. Again, um, that the capitalist state has directly identified sexual labor, uh, paid sexual labor, as something that allows women and queers, and particularly racialized women and queers, um, a little bit more room to maneuver. So again, if we're looking. Um, in terms of, of how freed women tried to, to move and just assert mobility um, in the late 1900s, we're looking at a story of the, the state understanding that getting paid directly for your 
sex work gave people a lot more freedom than working in domestic work for white bosses, for example. Um, we can see in other contexts that it was something that people did um, to facilitate their saying no to factory labor. Um, or again, I think this is part of the what's what's so um, terrifying for the state about sex work under contemporary conditions. Um, when there is a perceived shortage of low wage workers and young people are saying that they can make in an hour what fast food workers are making in a week, I'm like, well, why would you not take that, that bargain? Um, and so, yeah, so I don't think it's so much just the taxation issue because, because people do pay their taxes and, um, you know, there's obviously all sorts of white collar work in which people skirt tax law but it's this ability to move, it's this ability to say no to other work, it's the ability to leave um, heterosexual relationships that are harmful. Um, there are all sorts of things that sex work can make possible for people. And I say that not to romanticize it, it's also like often really hard won, um, but it does ensure a kind of mobility that, that the state doesn't want working people to have. You write now sex workers are staring down the barrel of the Earn It Act, currently advanced in the Senate, a law that would end Internet encryption and make it even harder for sex workers to use the web to make money independently and safely, like other legal interventions sold as ways to protect kids from stranger danger. These laws both fail at their task and wreak havoc in their wake. And you add that sex workers have repeatedly appealed to allies for support, organizing through Survivors Against SESTA, hashtag Stop Earn It, and awareness campaigns about the harms of banking discrimination. If respectable workers faced similar mass income loss or policy interventions that made their jobs overwhelmingly less safe, the left would surely offer their support. How does banking discrimination make sex workers' jobs less safe? Mm -hmm. Well, again, I mean, it's, it's, I think, not a mistake that banking discrimination, um, which is directly enabled by state policy, both because banks are trying to get one step ahead of possible trafficking charges, but also because sex workers aren't a legally protected category um, in anti-discrimination law. And so it's not a mistake that this law cuts off sex workers' ability to get paid, to get their money, not just to, you know, be, have naked images online, for example. Um, and so what that does, and, and it shifts depending on the sector we're talking about, but again, it forces sex workers to take more risks and to give a higher cut of their earnings to third parties. Um, and, and so... I think part of what I'm trying to highlight in this piece is like we know or anyone who's paying attention knows that these are really urgent and scary problems for sex working people. I'm trying to pivot a bit and say like, that is true, but I'm also not sure that continuing to say that is going to convince the horophobic left to do anything because it hasn't in spite of sex workers repeated attempts to do so. But just to remind that that these that the effects of, of laws like this and of policies such around banking discrimination, for example, aren't gonna stop here. Um, and I think if we turn back to Erna and to these questions around encryption, it just becomes really key to think about what this will mean for labor organizing more broadly. So, you know, just last week we learned that Starbucks is 
uh, calling the cops on union organizers and also um, subpoenaing their communications. And so that's just one of so many examples of where like, people are gonna wish that they'd listen to sex workers because if you can't communicate um, you know, with any expectation of privacy, what it looks like to do even the most mainstream kind of union drive totally changes. You also point out that in many instances, these laws do not make children safer, earn it, or FOSTA-SESA, given that their abusers are most likely to be family members. Fewer than 0.01% of missing kids are abducted by a stranger. And FOSTA-SESA has resulted in just one trafficking prosecution in the four years since its passage. So is FOSTA-SESA, is earn it? Are both these, uh, all these acts and laws, are they all based on a myth? If, if stranger danger is a myth, something we've discussed on this show several times in the past, what is, what is it a cover for, especially in outcomes like FOSTA-SESTA? What, what are they, why are they creating this myth to get these laws passed? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think again, and, you know, I don't mean to sound conspiratorial, but I think it's really clear. And as you, as you say, like, um, that if on the one hand, we understand that children and young people are most at risk by family members, you know, their fathers, uncles, etc., um, then we can see anti-trafficking law rooted in stranger danger, as well as sex offender law and all of these um, interventions that use the language of stranger danger, they're a cover for nuclear families that are really, really dangerous for people. Um, and so that that's particularly concerning for me insofar as people who call themselves feminists support these, these narratives. Um, so the, the fact that we've entered into a moment in which feminists are supporting narratives that give an alibi to, you know, abusive dads, I think is, is really, really concerning. Um, and then, of course, they also have the effect of criminalizing people in informal economies and thus um, pushing them back into low-wage jobs. So they, they do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, if you are someone who is repping for the nuclear family, for abusers within those families, um, on the one hand, and then also for, for low-wage employers on the other, then it's kind of a, a perfect combination. You write that in part, this is a story of whorephobia and bourgeois attachments to productive work and unpaid uh, private reproductive sex that has long created a vacuum of solidarity in the civilian left. But it also reflects the mainstream left's inability to recognize struggles that don't fit within the categories and demands of labor movements that were historically organized on behalf of white male workers. Are unions, is labor organizing as it exists today in the United States and has historically, are they far more accommodating to jobs and workplaces for white workers, especially white male workers, than workers of color, especially women of color and the most marginalized? Are unions better suited for white workers and workplaces, if you will, than workers and workplaces of color? No, I think in this moment, there are so many really exciting union campaigns led by black and brown workers. Um, and in particular, if we're thinking about where the union movement is most strong right now, we're looking at food service, we're looking at nursing, we're looking at education. Um, and, and so these are feminized, racialized workers, and they have made a calculation that this kind of organizing makes sense for them and they have been winning real wins. So the, this, making this historical point is not to minimize any of that. 
Um, but yeah, there is a long history of particularly trade unions um, existing primarily on behalf of white male workers. Um, and, and we can see some of the ways that that, that reverberates in, into contemporary union politics. One of those is, I think, this kind of combination of pity and disdain for gig workers, where so much of the thrust behind um, even organizing gigged workplaces, gigged workplaces is to make them look more like traditional jobs. So to demand, say, standardized hours for rideshare drivers um, is one example. But as we talked about before, um, there are a lot of workers, particularly caregivers, particularly people with disabilities for whom standardized hours isn't the kind of demand that they need. So I think both of those things are true. I'm really you know, excited about the campaigns that are underway in, um, in a lot of jobs right now, but they don't, you know, that set of strategies just doesn't work for everyone. And I think, you know, circumstances are just too dire to not use every kind of tactic that we have available to us. And you point out that gig working sex workers don't fit into neat class categories. Many would rather have no boss than uh, one disciplined by collective bargaining. And like others with a long historical memory for state violence, most know the state as an antagonist rather than as a protective force to be engaged earnestly. So is work for the marginalized a state intervention? And how do we understand work differently for those who, of us who are not marginalized? Uh, how do we understand work differently when we see for the marginalized that work can be and is a state intervention? Can you say more about what you mean by work as a state intervention? about how work imposes uh, what you, uh, how you need to act and survive within the capitalist state as a, sure. a, a state intervention of insisting that you be a productive worker. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, so yeah, the, the capitalist state has a lot at stake in, um, in ensuring a, a productive and, you know, in many ways, docile workforce. Um, again, this isn't just about taxation, but it's about what it means to, um, to operate on behalf of capital, which, which this state um, always has. And, and so that, that's, that's part of my concern with some of the um, attachments that trade unionism, unionism comes with, which is that the bargain has always been um, that that trade unionism ensures a, a steady stream of productive workers under slightly better conditions. And often the, the um, kind of even explicit message has been um, that, that if corporate capital, for example, complies with demands, then the union will ensure that people continue to show up. So I think you know, there's, there's obviously a ton of really crucial wins that have come from that. And at the same time, um, there's not really a scenario in which that gets us to a more kind of radical political horizon. It's something that 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 kind of keeps things um, running. And so, so it, it's really a question of of what the what our end demands are. And I think that sex workers, you know, and I'm so glad that you you intro this hour with Kombahi. Um, sex workers are not only the most, you know, perhaps one of the most oppressed sectors of the working population, but 
but also have less to lose. And that was also part of Kambahi's intervention, right? Is to say that like people at the bottom have left to, less to lose. And so people with less to lose often make bigger demands. We have been, have been speaking with Dr. Heather Berg, author of the Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex Workers or Labor's Vanguard. The left ignores them at its peril. Dr. Berg writes about sex work and social struggle. Her first book, published in 2021, is Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. You can find Heather on Twitter at drheatherberg and find out more about her by visiting the website drheatherberg.org. One last question for you, Heather, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to mm-hmm. ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write about and you mentioned the platform cooperatives that yes. scholars and activists advocate as the new horizon for gig workers. Uh, you also point out that contemporary sex workers aren't the only or first thinkers to resist uh, ten- this tendency. The radical auto worker and Marxist theorist James Boggs, people may know him as the husband of Grace Lee Boggs, the late Grace Lee Boggs, named uh, his critique in the 1960s with his analysis of a mainstream left whose attachments to a white male secu- securely employed proletariat limited its political horizon, its demands sought to ossify full-time employment under Fordism, a highly particular moment in the capitalist wage relation and one that was fading even then. Uh, James Boggs uh, looked hopefully to the outsiders, the mass of people who have long labored outside the security and the discipline of the factory and could imagine radical alternatives. For Boggs, that meant exposing the idea that work is the precondition for basic human rights. Quote, the question of the right to a full life has to be divorced completely from the question of work. What would it take to divorce the right to a full life from the question of work, that that, that life lacks meaning and is not rewarding without a willingness to work? What is there beyond being a citizen or a worker? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. This doesn't feel like a question from hell for me. Um, yeah, full communism is what it would take, I think, and, and one um, really rooted in the understanding that, that people have so much richer capacities than, than can be um, absorbed by working life, whether, whether that working life is for, the, for capital, for a capitalist state, or, you know, as, as CLR James talked about, um, for, for what he called um, state capitalism. So, so the problem again is, is what it means to have a life um, devoted to production. Um, in some ways, that that's obviously worse than under capitalism. But in in some ways, like the, again, that that problem persists even if the the spoils are more evenly distributed. So, what would that look like? You know, I I really think that humility here is important. And I, I hope that doesn't sound like a cop out, but as much as, as my politics are really centered around wanting more, around trying to get myself and others to demand more, I think it's also clear that, that we are all breathing the same air and drinking the water. And I really hope that, that we will get closer to that horizon and then start demanding even more, which is to say, like, I don't, I don't trust anyone who says now, that they know exactly what they want that to look like. Um, and this is something that the anti-work theorist Kathy Weeks talks about, um, that we, we can't know until we get there and then we'll get closer and we keep making demands. 
Um, and so what that looks like at the end of the day, um, I hope is something so much richer than anything that I can conceive of from my current position. Um, but, but this is something again that I turned to, to sex worker thought for where sex workers have a real knack in some ways, you know, you could think about what it would mean to treat the state like a John. And so to make demands that are not earnest ones and then keep making them. Um, so, so you're never done asking. And so that's my answer. I don't, maybe I've turned it into the question from help uh, for my refusal to give you a blueprint. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. And I love okay. the idea <laughs> of treating the state like a John. That is absolutely brilliant, Heather. Heather, thank you so much for being on our show. This has been a fantastic conversation and people should check out your book from 2021, Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. Thank you so much for being on our show. And whenever you have any new piece coming out, if you have a new book coming out, please get in contact with us so we can have you back on the show. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. I, I did too. Thank you so much for having me. These were great questions. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care. You too. Bye. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell Treat the State Like a John. If what you just heard from Heather on sex work and the left, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live this week on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Next week, the Patreon podcast returns to its more regular Thursday morning time, also at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. We're still on Central Daylight Time, right? This week on Patreon, it's a return of This Week in Hell, our semi-regular recap of what happened on the show over the past week, at least from my own personal perspective. It might not be what you got from this week, of shows, but it's what I got out of them. And remember, I probably smoke a lot more weed than you do, so it is very, very likely that my perception of what happened on air this week is far different from yours, and, and probably not in a good or insightful way as much as a, whoa, that's so cool stoner way. Also on Patreon, we learned over our two weeks off that past guest in Philippines, vice presidential candidate, former vice presidential candidate, the human rights activist Walden Bello was arrested only two weeks after Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the former president and dictator Marcos, of whom Walden was highly critical, was elected. Uh, Walden was arrested on charges of cyber libel that were brought forward by an aide to Vice President Sarah Duterte, as in the Duterte family who just left office as president after a notorious run of human rights abuses. Yes, a Duterte-Marcos ticket actually won an election in the Philippines. Because of Walden's arrest and current uh, detention, we are sharing our conversation with him live from Manila back on February 28, 2009. At the time, his most recent writing included The Global Collapse, A Non-Orthodox View, and Asia, The Coming Fury. We didn't share that over the break did we uh not that i know of. good good fantastic so we'll be sharing that interview during patreon podcast 
on Friday. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from Ellen. Share with us the rest of our listeners' answers. This week's question from Hell is, what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? What evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? On Facebook, Micah Dilga says, hope. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how hope is evidence of a crime. But uh, also, how do you flush it down the toilet? Um, I don't know, maybe Hope is the name of his Dalmatian or something. No, that's disturbing. Let's go with his goldfish, okay? (laughs) Let's go with his goldfish. That sounds a lot better. Uh, On Twitter, John says, other than every morning? (laughs) Uh, Kevin O says, last night's dinner. Well, let's... Okay. I mean, okay. if last night's dinner was a crime, maybe yeah. maybe take maybe some was. cooking classes, Kevin. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> maybe quit eating at Popeye's, for God's mm. sake. Popeye's is okay. I know. I just like taking a shot of Popeye's okay. every so often. Fair, 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 fair enough. I mean, they, they like, whenever I order at Popeye's, like, it's, it's a running joke in our household now. Whenever I order at Popeye's, they forget to, to or ignore that I want sauces in yeah. Popeye's without the sauce. It's just, just <laughs> I know you've got, you've got, it's, it's your Achilles heel. And by yeah. the way, yeah. the Achilles heel at uh, Popeye's, disgusting. Do not order it. It's really <laughs> awful. Uh, L. Orion says something told me I should have taken a picture of the last of the first Wagyu steak I've ever eaten last oh, night yes. courtesy of some billionaire credit card lord's benevolence of course hypocrite reader says listen that bald eagle had it coming <laughs> uh and l- I did like that one yeah uh, but I think the hypocrite reader just won like last week or the week I know, before. I know, I know. But anyway, twofer. Uh, and Sledgenade Sledgenade uh, writes Toilets were designed specifically to flush the evidence of my greatest crimes. And then uh, also adds a lot of poop jo- jokes coming your way. Well, actually, not. <laughs> There's I mean, only one. There yeah, was a, there kind was of not, surprise. Not was... that many. Yeah. Not that many. Okay. Uh, Any more? Nope, that's it. So the answers I liked most were, I did like hypocrite readers saying that Bald Eagle uh, had it coming or was asking for it. Yeah, that is very good, hypocrite reader. Uh, Mika saying uh, Hope, just because I thought that was kind of a surreal answer. Uh, Neil C. saying that he was flushing leftover Ikea parts, which is good. Uh, Philip A. saying the byproducts of my Colorado River draining almond habit, which is which is really good because the word draining there involved with the toilet does sound. That's really good. Josh F. saying all evidence of my part in the deal to bring NASCAR to downtown Chicago. Oh, good God. And Krimsky saying this question is an assault on the liberty to flush and a witch hunt. So those are all really good, but... The answer I liked the most this week, I don't know about you, Sebastian, but I really liked Philip A.'s answer, the byproducts of my Colorado River yep. draining yep. almond habit. That, that, that was spot on. Yep. Uh, Lindsay, I could tell, that had uh, that touched a, a spot with her because she's from uh, Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. and concerned about the Colorado River. So that's this week's winner. Philip, just send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of merchandise you want, and we'll get it into the mail uh, for you post-haste. Oh, you can find out all, find all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. My answer to this week's question, what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? Well, before weed was legalized, remember it was not decriminalized, it was legalized, and that sucks. The answer to what I was maniacally flushing down the toilet 
Well, it was obvious back in the day. It was always weed. So the criminal evidence I'm maniacally flushing down the toilet now is the evidence of my poor choices when it comes to whatever I snacked on maniacally while way too high and drunk right before I went to bed the night before. That, thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We truly appreciate it. And now I am very delighted to announce the very first, the premier installment of producer Sebastian Vopper's history segment, previously known as Seb's Soapbox, and now for the first time ever airing as The Past in the Present. The past inside the present. So, where do you even start when talking about the Holocaust? Oh yeah, I'm talking about Nazis again. Surprise! Uh, they they really are, like, cruelly cynical and exceptionally brutal gum that just won't get off your shoe. So, I will, because talking about the Holocaust is, well, surprise, surprise, something that really requires a lot of time, and uh, I, I can't just keep talking for an hour. Uh, this is basically the first part of a two-parter, um, kind of like the two-part premiere of The Past Inside the Present. Uh, this is, today, we're sort of serving the setup next week. Um, I don't want to call it the execution, because that is kind of, is, I'm not, I don't want to make puns here, because this is really not a fun topic. But anyway, you get the gist. So, growing up in Germany, as part of the generation that I belong to, you can't really escape the Nazis. The Nazis and their absolutely horrifying deeds are in everything in education in Germany, from history class to political science class to geography classes to German literature classes. We start learning about them in Germany. Um, we start learning about the Nazis and those issues roughly in fifth grade. And it helps that many schools are named after heroes of the resistance against the Nazi regime, or at least after people who in some ways resisted them and at some point you just end up asking yourself this again haven't we heard enough about this don't we like whoever hasn't understood that they were really awful like why are we even trying but now with the benefit of hindsight of um i don't know like 20 plus years of uh, uh, being outside of the german school system i can say that no you actually have never heard enough about this the holocaust still is something that requires frequent refreshers lest it be forgotten even for me because well the truth about it is just so awful and so absolutely disgusting and so fundamentally disturbing that at least for me personally I find it hard to hold this truth about it, the, the Holocaust and the Nazis and the regime and all the things that they did. I just find it difficult to hold in my active memory for too long. Sure, the outlines are there, but the details kind of have to be mushed aside for sanity's sake. But where do I start in talking about it? What was the Holocaust? What makes it still to this day stand out apart and alone among the genocides that humans have committed towards other human beings? So let me start then at the beginning. The Holocaust was the explicit attempt by the German government and military to exterminate what they thought of as the quote-unquote Jewish race from the face of the planet forever, completely. Genocide, which is Völkermord in German, which means the murder of a people. 
But where does all of this begin? Where where do you start in talking about this, as I said at the beginning? In many ways, the Holocaust was the culmination of a long perversion of Enlightenment thought. Maybe you remember that in a past episode when talking about whiteness, I mentioned the white men natural philosophers of the era of the scientific revolution who divided the natural world into various classes and hierarchies, into kingdoms of plants, fungi, and animal, and so forth, with themselves, the white men, as the crown of all creation, the cream of the crop. And then turn forward the clock roughly two centuries, and, well, then you have Auschwitz and Dachau and Bergen-Belsen and all the other extermination camps. But what happened in between? Scientific racism happened, and scientific racism made googly eyes at European anti-Semitism. That's what happened. Anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews, has a long-time-honored tradition in Europe, and by extension, also a long-time-honored tradition in the United States. Jews were always the ultimate other in Christian Europe. They were not Christian, first of all. They were a separate, distinct religious community. They kept to themselves and were forced to keep to themselves. They had different traditions due to their different religion. They mostly intermarried within their own community, but also were kind of forced to do that in some degree. It's just like a little bit of a push, a little bit of shove. And in the time of the Crusades, uh, around the year 1000, they were blamed for having murdered Christ, which then gave rise to violent persecution. They were blamed for lusting after the blood of Christian children. They were blamed for poisoning wells. And since Christians in medieval Europe were generally not allowed to engage in money lending, and since Jews were largely barred from work that required membership in trades guilds, uh, many European Jews throughout the ages worked as moneylenders and merchants, not because they chose to, but because the circumstances forced them to. And that again drew the ire of the population and gave rise to more anti-Semitic stereotypes. Eventually, at the end of the Middle Ages, most European Jews, so most Ashkenazim anyway, so Ashkenazim are the Jews out of Germany, uh, had moved from the Franco-German heartland into Eastern Europe, where the Jewish diaspora community thrived and lived in relative peace for a while. And then, when scientific racism came around, some of those fine farts following those scientifically racist ideas basically decided that Jews were not really just a religious community, but a distinct race. Whether these people thought of Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardic Jews, so the Jews in Spain, Ethiopian Jews, well, that's self-explanatory, or something else is not really clear. One thing was certain for those people, though, the Jews were not white. They were lesser. And bada-bing, bada-boom, the violent anti-Semitic stereotypes of yore now became married to scientific racism this, that, with such wonderful scientific, not advancement, such as phrenology, proved that objectively, well, again, not really, that Jews were in fact biologically lesser than white people. But Western European Jews had undergone a century and a and some change-long process of first emancipation and then assimilation by the time World War I rolled around. So now we're going into the 20th century. Emancipation of Jews in Western Europe meant that the old rules that Jews had to live separate from Christians in ghettos, that they were limited to certain jobs and so on, were essentially lifted. And this largely happened in the latter half of the 1700s. 
And over the course of the 19th century, then, Jews became generally more integrated into European society, with the differences between them and everyone else slowly eroding. Which is not to say that anti-Semitism went away. As I said, at that time, it actually turbocharged itself through the connection to scientific racism. Where I'm going with this is that, as Europe descended into the bone grinder that was the Great War, most Jews in Western European countries were well integrated and assimilated into that society. They were no longer the parallel society that, had, uh, that they had been forced into for centuries before. And in Germany, uh, they were gripped by the very same nationalistic war fervor everyone else was infected with. German Jewish men went to the front lines of the Great War with no less zeal to shoot French and Russians and British than did the quote-unquote pure-blooded Germans. Check World War I cemeteries and you'll find quite a few stars of David among the crosses. And the real trouble began after the First World War. German nationalists blamed everything on the Jews. The Lost War, the humiliating Versailles treaties, the chaos of the Weimar Republic, the galloping hyperinflation of the early 20s, all of that was portrayed as part of the grand Jewish world conspiracy to bring down the white man. Jews were also blamed for World War I in general, which, in the estimation of the ding-dongs, had been a Jewish attempt at making the superior quote-unquote races kill each other. The after-effects of the war were a twisting of the Jewish knife, basically. It, was, it, wasn't, it was not the fact that the German Empire had taken on outrageous loans to finance the war in the stubborn belief that once they won the war, inevitably, <coughs> yeah, they could then wrest reparations from the defeated. And when none of that worked out, the Weimar Republic that succeeded the German Empire just printed money to cover those debts, which, among other things, led to galloping inflation, where within a year or so, one dollar was suddenly worth something like one trillion marks. Uh, but no, that, that didn't happen. That, that was not the reason the anti-Semites said. It was the Jewish conspiracy that had long since infiltrated banking and finance and was now trying to smother Germany, which the Jews so hated, supposedly. Uh, the same arguments came roaring back with ferocity then, a few years later, as the Great Depression crashed the world economy and plunged Weimar Germany into more chaos at the end of the 1920s. Also, the roaring 20s, with all the decadence and debauchery, especially in the big cities like Berlin, uh, were something that the Nazis and anti-Semites in general saw as a Jewish attempt at corrupting the German nation morally. And this is roughly where Hitler and his ilk got their ideas on Jews from. That's basically a reflection of that. The strain of anti-Semitism that the Nazis made part of their whole identity was one that saw Jews as a distinct race, a race that had over time wormed its way into the leading positions of European society, or Western society in general, and was secretly plotting to have the white races of the world fight one another to the death until only Jews remained. Or something along those lines. It's, you know, like with all of these things, it's not entirely uh, coherent necessarily. And a lot of these ideas were partially fueled by and partially inf inf influenced, and, and, and partially influenced because it's like kind of, again, like a little bit of a push and a little bit of a shove. The infamous anti-Semitic hoax text, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which none other than America's most influential anti-Semite, Henry Effing Ford, 
made quite popular in the U.S. The publication of the protocols charged anti-Semitism, even after they were revealed to be a fraud in 1921. And this hoax pretty much condenses most of the accusations the Nazis fielded against the Jews into one handy document. Jews wanted to destroy Western civilization by control of the banks, by control of the media, and wanted to erode Western moral values, and so on and so forth. For the Nazis, all of this nonsense was combined with their own ideas about racial purity. As a biological race, Jews were the most impure to the Nazis, the weakest, the laziest, only good to do paper-pushing and extraction of wealth from the hard-working Aryans. White people, on the other hand, were the fittest, the toughest, and the strongest. And the Jews hated that. And to undermine the Aryan race, the Nazis said, the Jews want to seduce our women to destroy our genetic stock, basically, with their filthy degenerate blood. And since the Nazis were, you know, fascists, they believed that as the objectively better, stronger race, the Aryans, the white people, had the moral duty to destroy the Jews. Because that's what the stronger have to do, destroy the weak, without hesitation or sentiment. And next week, um, I will look at how they went about that. So uh, look forward to that. And are you going to have an expanded version of this oh. on YouTube? Uh, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. I don't have the time for <laughs> okay, it. Okay, I understand. I understand. So uh, you will have the continuation of this then next week during Sebastian Vupper's The Present or The Past Inside the President. And that will be happening on Monday of next week, correct? During yes. During the first yes. hour. So thanks to this week's producers, Sebastian Vupper, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. As always, thanks to Alexander Jerry for all of his behind-the-scenes work. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and to Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History and to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood just because. Seb, who will be joining us as our guest next week here on This Is Hell? Uh, next week we have Laura Malden who wrote the Baffler article Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. Laura is an associate professor at the University of Connecticut. She is currently writing a book that tells the stories of disabled people and caregivers as they try to survive in an ableist America. And I never got one phone call. Not one phone call. You'd think writing a book about that, I would be right there at the top of everybody's list. Uh, who else? Who's going to be our second uh, guest second next guest week? guest next week is uh, Penny M. Von Eschen, uh, the author of a new book, Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War, Triumphalism, and Global Disorder Since 1989. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Penny is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of American Studies. Man, that's a mouthful. Yeah. And Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Huh, she's no longer at Michigan. And uh, author of Satchmo Blows Up the World, Jazz Ambassadors Play the Cold War, and Race Against Empire, Black Americans and Anti-Colonialism in 1937 to 1957. How are you aware of her work at University of Michigan? Uh, because when I when I was applying for grad school, she was there, and I contacted her. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Look at that. Small world. And who's our final guest next week? And the final guest next week is the return of economist Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research. Dean will be on to discuss his most recent writing, including structuring the economy to give money to the rich is inflationary. So Dean is back on, I think it's the first time in four or five years. He used to be on the show like at least a couple of times every year, at least. And it's been several years since he's been on the show. So Dean is returning next week. He is, I know, one of our 
longtime listeners' favorites. So uh, Dean returns next week to hear This Is Hell. Uh, there will also be another The Past Inside the Present with Seb Booper during next week's first hour, followed in the second hour by Rotten History and Another Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin back again in its regularly scheduled slot during the show's final hour of the week. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Don't forget, Office Hours return next week on Wednesday, August 24th, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think that starts up at about 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, the same place where we will be hosting the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party. That's coming up on the final weekend of summer on Saturday, September 17th, so put that in your calendar as well. And smoke it. What's that? Put it in your calendar and smoke it. Smoke it, that's right. So... There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>